when it will happen, have been going on for as long as people can remember. Um, One of the the biggest sort of worldwide uh, thinkings about the end of the world um, came from a man named Hippolytus. And he predicted that the end of the world would happen in 500 A.D., Have you ever wondered, how did people come up with these dates? Well, there's a little bit of background on Hippolytus, and it's not going to make you feel any better about him uh, after I explain it. But he he said that the biblical six-day creation account foreshadowed a 6,000-year existence of the world, okay? And then it gets even weirder. Um, He'd come up with a mathematical equation, and he inserted in that equation the dimensions um, of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, which makes a lot of sense. You know, just pick a random, you know, thing in the Old Testament and stick in the numbers. And through that equation, he came up with the idea that when Jesus came, the world was 5,500 years old. And so you add to that to get to 6,500 more years and... Are you still following me? I, I, I got confused, you know? And, and yet, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because it's 1,500 years later, the world's still here. About 1,000 A.D., 500 years later. This one was, was even uh, hit more people. Um, the continent of Europe at the time was overtaken by this anxiety over the end, that it would happen in 1000 AD. You can, can look this up in history books. And, and farmers didn't plant their crops, and they left their, people left their homes unrepaired. Criminals were set free. People um, sold their possessions and gave all the proceeds to the poor, you know, to get on the good side of the big guy. And the, they confessed their sins. And in fact, a historian at the time wrote about how even Pope, Pope Sylvester at the time, was involved with this. And he wrote an interesting account of uh, what happened on December 31st, 999, that I I thought would be interesting to to share with you. So this is just a few hours before a thousand came. The midnight mass had been said, and a deathly silence fell. The audience waited. Pope Sylvester said not a word. He seemed lost in prayer, his hands raised to the sky. The clock kept ticking. A long sigh came from the people, but nothing happened. Like children afraid of the dark, all those in church lay with their faces to the ground and did not venture to look up. Then suddenly, it became midnight. And among the congregation, the beginning of a stream of terror began to form in many a throat. And guess what happened next? Ryan got, nothing happened. And I was wondering if I was the Pope, which I never would be the Pope, uh, you know, if, if, if I was the pastor, what do you do next? And the historian Frederick tells us, um, it's kind of a very churchy thing to do. He uh, said the blessing and told everyone to go home. Um, it's about all you can do at that point. Most recently, there's been a couple predictions. There's a pastor in California named Harold Camping. He's in his 90s. And he predicted that the end of the world would come on May 21st, 2011. He, too, had a mathematical equation of some sort. And so his group raised millions of dollars, in part for billboards, in part we're just not quite sure what they did with the millions of dollars. 
But they raised all this money to let people know about the end coming, and May 21st came and it went, and um, we're still here. So the news interviewed him, and he said, oh, yeah, I, I think I got my math wrong. I'm paraphrasing. And he gave a new date. Now, if you were Harold Camping, wouldn't you have given the next date, like, long after you're dead, right? He picked October 21st, 2011. So just a couple, few months later, it came and went, and we're still here. Some Christians who sort of wanted to poke fun at the prediction, put up their own billboards. I thought it might be a little humorous to show you some actual billboards that went up in our country. Here's one of them. <laughs> this is after his prediction didn't come true. Now, if there's one emotion that is elicited by society's talk and sort of focus on the end of the world, if you had to choose one emotion I want you to mentally think about, what would that be? What I see in here is fear. That if you had to pick one emotion that society elicits about the end of the world, it's fear. You know why that is? Because society and sometimes even you and I, we end up asking the wrong questions. Like the question that Harold Camping and others have asked more than any other seems to be, the question of when. And when is, when, when is your primary question? Fear is going to happen. And the ironic part is that the Bible actually spends zero time talking about when. In fact, the verse that is referenced on the billboard is this one right here. Jesus says. So if Jesus said it, I'm just going to kind of go with him, okay? No one knows about the day or the hour. Not even the angels in the heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. No one knows, and yet we focus all of our attention on when. Another question we seem to be consumed by is, is how. Remember 2012, Mayan calendar? On December 21st, a meteor was supposed to come and wipe us out. They even had a name for the meteor. That's scary. Didn't happen. Or is the sun going to explode and melt us all? Or maybe it's just going to be global warming to melt us all. I, I don't know. But when we focus on the how, what happens? Fear, mostly. And yet this series is called, It's the End of the World and I Feel Terrified. No, it's the end of the world and I feel fine. And it has all to do about the question that you ask. And more than that, the question that your heart focuses on when considering the future. The question is not, when will it happen? The question is not, how will it happen? The question God directs us to, and I direct you to this morning on his behalf, is one simple question, is the question of who will happen. That the question that we need to consider is who. In fact, that's the fill-in for our first blank. The end of the world isn't about when or about how. If there's one thing you can take away today, because it'll remind you about the rest we talk about, a focus on the end of the world is all about who. So who's the who? Sound like a Dr. Zeus book. Who's the who? Well, let's turn to God's word. And what we're going to do is look at some words that Jesus spoke. He spoke these words to his disciples um, a few months before he would die. 
and then he would rise again. And so he talks about the future, and he also talks about the end of the world, the, the way future for those disciples. So we turn to Matthew chapter 25. We begin verse, verse 31. Jesus is speaking. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. So, what will be the signal that it's the last day? The sun explodes, a meteor hits us. It's not that scary. There will be tribulation leading to the last day. That will be a sign. In fact, all the signs already are here. It could be any time. We're not missing anything, okay? But when it's here, it won't be something to be scared about. But instead, here's the picture. The Son of Man will come, and he'll come in glory with all his angels. Can I contrast this with something? Remember when Jesus came the first time? We're going to celebrate it in about two months. When he came at Christmas, think about just how humbly he came. Like, no one really even knew. You had shepherds out about a mile or so out of Bethlehem, and they needed angels in the sky to tell them that there was a Savior born and he was God's son. They had no clue. You had these two, three, five, ten, however many, we don't know, wise guys from the east, call them magi, right? And they thought, you know, that star looks a little funny. It might correspond to this Old Testament prophecy. Not sure exactly, not sure what it points to. They talked to the king of Israel, Herod, he had no idea. Herod says, hey, go, go tell me what you find out. I haven't heard anything. No one knew who he was, except maybe, obviously, his parents. And yet on the last day, glory, oops, go back, glory and angels. The Bible says that the sound that we'll hear is a loud trumpet sound. Just don't mistake it for your, you know, child playing trumpet in the basement. I was trying to think, you know, what could we compare this to? How, how could we sort of get ourselves to just picture how glorious this will be? And I have this really bad comparison, but it's a place to start. Um, if you've ever been to a professional um, sports game, let's take the Vikings as an example and think to pregame introductions, right? And you've got... Lights and fireworks and music. I don't know if there's trumpets. There's a, a horn, right? And there's a shaking Viking ship. And then these guys that, you know, play football um, come out and, and the whole crowd, 60, 70,000, go wild for these football players who I would say the introduction for every football player is more than really what is deserved in a lot of ways, right? And yet on the last day, that's just like a little sliver for the one who will deserve it all and more. That Jesus returns in his glory. People in the Old Testament, they were around God's glory. They couldn't look because of how powerful and wonderful that was. And thousands of angels accompanying him. So different than Christmas. You know what the Judgment Day is all about? It's all about the who. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his return. It's all about his victory. And it's all about his relationship with you. 
So then what? Well, Jesus continued. Verse 32. All the nations ever will be gathered. I don't know how that's going to work. Numbers in the billions, right? Not sure. Don't need to know. God just tells me what I need to know. Don't need to know how exactly that will work. We'll be gathered before him, and Jesus then will separate the people one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Notice, they're not sheep and goats, but he's using a comparison that they would relate to. In an agricultural sort of shepherding society, this was a, a, a thing or a comparison that everyone would understand. You know how the shepherd goes through and he separates sheep from goats? Um, if he used a comparison today, maybe he would use something like, you know, just as you go through and you separate the, the darks from the lights in the laundry, you know, kind of like that. Uh, there's going to be two groups. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then what? Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom, of the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now, can I ask, how and on what basis will Jesus divide the people? If you look at this verse, I think you can very easily come up with an answer that is going to be conflicting with other things you've heard and maybe even cause you problems. It, it sounds like Jesus is saying that on the basis of what you've done, you will be in your group, either the sheep or the goats, the right or the left. I, I want to unpack that real quick because it's not what Jesus is saying. There's two words here that are really important to concentrate on. First of all, the word blessed. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, come, you who deserve and will be paid. The word blessing in the original has the idea of something given through grace or out of love. Something not earned, but a blessing is something given out of undeserved love. And then he calls it an inheritance. Um, how much do you do to earn an inheritance well, it's probably good to be on the good side of mom and dad in order to get an inheritance, right? You don't want to burn any bridges, I suppose. <laughs> but how much have you done? How much did you earn if you're ever so lucky to receive an inheritance? Which, you know, this is, I come from a pastor's family. This will be about the only inheritance that I receive. Um, I'm not looking, looking forward to that, the one from my parents, but this one I am. How much do you, if you're so fortunate to have an inheritance, did you earn that? It, it was not your work. It was someone else's. And then someone, your parents, your grandparents, give it to you. And yet our very natural way of thinking right away goes to earning. Not only when we read these verses, but just when we think about our confidence for eternity. It's just the way that we work, and, and it's seen in a whole bunch of different ways, that if we receive something someday, it's, it's on the basis of what we can prove and what we can show. 
Um, there's this uh, reading program that some of you who are parents might know. It's called Read to Achieve. It's uh, through the Minnesota Timberwolves, and um, the kids get like a, a little tally sheet like this, and they're supposed to keep track of um, how many pages they read, and if you read 500 pages or so, you get a free ticket to the Timberwolves game, which, just a little of an aside, um, the first year we did this, I found out that you get that ticket free if you buy another one at full price. So it was kind of like, really? This, you know, anyway, it's a totally different thing. It's, it's a buy one, get one is what it is. Um, but kids eat this up. They read and read and read. They make their tally marks. And, and, and then at the end, here, see what I did, teacher. Here, see what I did, Timberwolves, right? And on that basis, you give me something. And if you think kids are the only ones to keep tally marks, if you're a hunter and your wife or husband doesn't really like that you go hunting because you leave them, guess what you do? You show them your tally marks. I did this. Or I've been really nice for the last couple hours, or <laughs> whatever it might be. Society promotes this. If you want to get into a certain school, show them your tally marks. Here's my ACT score. Here's my GPA. If you want the promotion or that next position, show them what you've done with your past. I know why we think this way. Because everything in life is this way. Except the most important thing. Because there's, there's no tally marks. There's no amount of tally marks that will ever get you into the sheep group or me. You know what the simple reason for that is? <sighs> that we have a just that is a holy God. And because God is just and holy, you and I need to be holy and just in order to receive heaven. And so literally, there are two groups. One are people who are perfect. And that group has Jesus and Jesus. <laughs> and then there's me. And you, if you're to be honest, and everyone else. And sinning just, being imperfect, it comes so easy. I mean, there's seasons in life where we are really motivated by the Spirit to change things. You, you've been in that season. And by God's grace, you do change some things. But it's never perfect. It's never totally done with that attitude that I'm always tempted about. Totally got my priorities in line. We always seem to lapse back, even with our best efforts. And then there's other seasons in life where we don't even really care where because of something that happened that has disappointed us or whatever, it's not even as if we're trying to change things. We're just down. And we're just going to stick in whatever type of life situation we're in. And that's the story of our life. Sin. God the perfect group, which has Jesus, and the imperfect group, which has everyone else. So we're all goats, huh? But Judgment Day is not either about when, it's not about how, it's not about tally marks. Who's it, what's it about? It's about who. And it's not just about who, it's about who you know. 
Here's what uh, John writes. Actually, this is what Jesus says and John records. This is eternal life. This is how you have eternal life. That you, that they, that is Christians, know the Father who sent me. There's some words missing there. And also Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing Jesus and guess what you get? Just by knowing or believing in him, you get, get pardoned. One, one of the craziest, this is my commentary, what I think is one of the craziest laws in our country, and I, I don't know all the history behind it, is the whole idea of a presidential pardon. So like, you can basically, as a president, someone can be as guilty as guilty is, but if they're your brother-in-law, you can just, you know, let them off. Or if they what happens, give a certain amount of money to your campaign, you'll let them off. These presidential pardons, and it's as if they have never done anything wrong. One of the most controversial pardons, and this isn't a political thing, it's just to get you thinking, was Richard Nixon. Uh, Just months after he was um, impeached, Gerald Ford pardoned him, so there was no, no trial or anything, right? That's what Jesus is going to do. It was pretty good for Richard Nixon to know Gerald Ford a little bit. On the last day, it's not about tally marks. It's about who you know. And you and I know someone more powerful than the president. We know the one we've sung about, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We know Jesus. And simply through trust in his death and resurrection... It's the end of the world, and I feel fine. Simply through trust and through that knowledge of who he is and trust in him, we are okay. And so you and I can rip up the tally marks. Don't carry it around. Whether it be the tally marks of, look, Lord, look at the good things I've done, or, Lord, I can't be here or stand in your presence because look at all the bad things I've done. Don't do the math. Just focus on the who. On Jesus. And when that happens, when your focus right now and for the end is on who, something else happens too. Is this section still kind of bothering you, this Matthew section, um, when it comes to what Jesus was saying there? Let me explain it a little bit more as we continue. This is, that was the next fill-in. You're saved by knowing Jesus as your Savior, and then the rest of the section. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer, just after Jesus says, you fed uh, me, you clothed me, and so on and so forth. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Is that the response of someone who is keeping A tally for read to achieve? When did I read 10 pages? Well, right here on October 31st, I read, the people who are sheep, the people who have their confidence for eternity on the who, they don't even know when these things happen. You know why that is? Because it's not about keeping track. You know why that is? Because when God changes your eternity through Jesus, 
he also changes your heart and he changes our lives. A changed heart produces changed lives. I was talking to a, a member after first service. Actually, it was a, a guest, a visitor. And uh, she said, I, I've, I've never really crystallized why I do what I do until we read that section today. Because people, she said, in my life always are like, you know, you're doing all this because of Jesus, because of Jesus, or, or why are you doing this even? And she said, I, I don't know, I just do it. I just act this way, or I just help people. And she couldn't even totally crystallize it. You know why? Because when your heart is changed and you're born again, so also your life is changed. And you don't even need to keep track. It just happens. Perfectly? No. But one of the signs of our faith, one of the signs of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives is in a changed and ever-changing, more godlike life. So at a certain point, we're praying more because changed hearts lead to changed lives. At a certain point in our maturity of faith, it's like, I don't need mom to haul me out of bed anymore. I'm a big boy now. I'm 35 years old, and I just get up, <laughs> and I go. Not because anyone told me to, but because... I don't know. When did I do this for you, Lord? This is just part of a changed heart, part of a changed life, and I actually enjoy it. And I actually enjoy serving you. It just happens accidentally. It happens <laughs> through the Holy Spirit. We started this uh, message by talking about fear on the last day. And I think in, in some ways you've, you've kind of come to the answer of, of how we do not fear, or don't need to fear, I should say. But I, I'd like to just sort of drive it home with, with last, one last illustration. Did you know that um, one of the most repeated commands in the Bible from God is do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. It shows up all over the place. When it comes to a command like that, in order for it to actually elicit less fear and peace, it has to be more than words, okay? For example, okay, um, we still have two younger kids um, that still have bad dreams at night and might occasionally come into our room a little bit scared because of a dream. And as a tearful little girl comes into our room, what do you think would happen if I, I woke up and I... I told her, you know, don't be afraid, but, but I said, woke up, you know, still trying to figure out what's going on because I'm in deep sleep and look at little Addie and say, do not be afraid. <laughs> you think that would give her comfort? I think she would like run to mom's side of the bed, which is usually where she starts anyway, but it, um, because it's more than words, right? Isn't it? I mean... If you really want someone not to be afraid or to not be fearful, a parent will, will take, the, especially if it's a very little kid, maybe put him, on, put him or her on his lap or take her by the hand and walk her to her room and, and, and tuck her in and sit there, maybe stroke her hair a little bit and look her in the eye and say, don't be afraid. And what often follows? I'm really tired. I need to go. No. Um, don't be afraid. 
I'm here. Don't be afraid. Daddy, mommy is here. Don't be afraid. When society thinks of the end and then reads God's description of don't be afraid, it's as if it's the father saying, don't be afraid of the destruction and the sun, you know, melting everyone. But what you know and what I know, it's when it's about the who instead of the when and instead of the what, it's as if the father is coming and, and gently taking you by the hand and saying what the Bible says. Don't be afraid. Why? For I am with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. Don't be afraid, because on the last day when you will rise, you will see the Lamb on his throne. And that will not only be the signal of the end, it will be the reason for our joy and confidence then and our joy and confidence now. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that through our study of your words recorded by Matthew, that some anxiety over the end has been stripped from our hearts. And that you help our hearts in the midst of all that goes on in the world and all the things that people say to just simply focus on one question. Who is the end about? And to know it's all about the Son of God, our Savior, your son. Through that, Lord, we'd ask you to keep our hearts ever focused as we go through our life on the difference that eternity makes and the last day makes for our today. Also, Lord, um, on this uh, special extended weekend, uh, we take a moment to thank you for all those men and women who in the past or in the present have served our country in the military. We uh, thank you for their willingness to fight at times uh, when needed for the freedoms that we enjoy and ask you to be with them and their families and especially maybe families who have lost loved ones in the military. Help us to appreciate uh, the blessings we have and the freedoms we have in this country. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.